This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... There are about 10 to 14% of the population that are at risk of food insecurity which accounts for about 1.9 million people requiring support of the government. That's Gabriel Paulin, Zambia's national coordinator of the Disaster Management and Mitigation Unit, talking about massive flooding in that country. Details coming up. Also, Pope Francis continues his visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And Central African states struggle to comply with a logging ban. We'll have these stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Officials say most member states in the Central African Economic and Monetary Community, CMAC, have failed to honor a ban on raw timber exports. The ban was enacted last year to conserve forests and create jobs by locally processing wood. Reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. The six member countries of the Central African bloc agreed to ban raw timber exports starting in January 2022. The ban is aimed partially at combating climate change by protecting forests from excessive logging. However, an online meeting of CEMAC forestry and finance ministers Thursday found that only Gabon and the Republic of Congo have suspended the timber exports to China and other Asian countries. Cameroon, the Central African Republic, Chad and Equatorial Guinea have not. Cameroon's finance minister Louis Paul Motaze said Cameroon needs the tax money from the exports which earned the country $127 million last year. He says a study conducted in 2022 by CEMAC shows if Central African states stop raw timber exports, they will lose 1% of their gross domestic product. Motaze says that is not healthy for a community that wants to develop. He also says local industries are yet to have the equipment for transforming timber into a variety of finished products. The deadline for implementing the ban was initially pushed back to January 2023 to give the CEMAC countries more time to comply. Motaze suggested the block push back the deadline again to 2025, so countries have more time to invest in wood processing equipment and training workers. The Republic of Congo and Gabon have already made some investments toward that goal and say their timber exports are now restricted to only semi-finished or finished wood products. Samuel Gifford is director of the Yaoundé-based Center for Environment and Development. He told Cameroon's state broadcaster that Central African states should not fear lost revenues from banning logging exports. On aura assez vite une baisse de la fiscalité. Gifford says banning raw timber exports will reduce deforestation, protect Central Africa's declining forests, spare local wood processing, stimulate growth, 
and create jobs. He says in the long run, CEMAC member states will generate more revenue from local sales and exports of processed timber products. Gifo says exporting raw timber gives most of the profits to processing industries in China and other Asian countries with high demand for raw materials. A 2021 Central Africa Forest Observatory report says since 2011, most of Central Africa's 4.2 million tons of exported wood has gone to markets in Asia. During that time, the report says annual timber exports to Europe drop in value by more than half to $600 million. The EU banned the sale of illegally harvested timber and timber products in 2012 and in 2021 restricted products suspected of contributing to deforestation. The United Nations says climate change and overlogging are threats to Central Africa's forests, the second largest moist tropical forest in the world after South America's Amazon. Moki Edwin Kinzika. For VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. Flash floods have been devastating parts of Zambia almost daily since the 1st of January, damaging bridges, roads and crops, which officials say may lead to food insecurity. With more than 50,000 people displaced, emergency relief support is already needed. Kathy Short reports from Lusaka, Zambia. Gabriel Pollen, the government's national coordinator of the Disaster Management and Mitigation Unit, or DMMU, says many communities are isolated, leaving them without access to health care and education. He adds that sanitation facilities have been submerged, exposing the population to a high risk of waterborne diseases. There are about 10 to 14 percent of the population that are at risk of food insecurity, which accounts for about 1.9 million people requiring support of the government. The government has since, through the Treasury, released a substantial amount of funds to cut up for emergency cash transfer as well as uh, in-kind support. Rachel Mwanza, a 36-year-old mother of four in one of the affected areas in Serenje in central Zambia, says flooding washed away her home and belongings. For Tyson Simuzingili, a lawmaker in the Gwembe area of southern Zambia, says the floods have destroyed roads and bridges, cutting off the area from the rest of the country. He says people are in need of urgent relief support. So it's been very challenging, and my appeal, as soon as possible, let DMMU come to our rescue. According to the United Nations Development Program, historically, Zambia is frequently affected with flash floods, extreme temperatures, and droughts, with increased severity in recent years. Inadequate infrastructure, paired with the fact that a large proportion of Zambia's 19 million population lives in rural and poor areas makes Zambia highly vulnerable to natural hazards, especially floods. Kathy Short for VOA News, Lusaka, Zambia. 
In a visit to Mali this week, Burkina Faso's Prime Minister has proposed a federation between the two countries that could boost economic growth. According to the French news agency AFP, Prime Minister Apollinaire Kailim de Tambila says the two countries could become a regional powerhouse by combining their mutual production of cotton, cattle and gold. Prior to independence from France in the early 1960s, the leaders of the region tried but failed to form a similar grouping. Both landlocked countries are fighting an Islamist insurgency that has driven more than two million people from their homes. Both also are led by military governments that are loosening their ties with traditional ally France in favor of closer ties to Russia and its Wagner mercenary group. Mali and Burkina Faso are also under pressure to relinquish power in democratic elections. The Tambila said a new federation should be undertaken before then because, in his words, when the politicians get back in, it will be very tricky. Pope Francis was received with wild enthusiasm by tens of thousands of young people in the Democratic Republic of Congo today for a rally. Over 65,000 people filled Kinshasa's Martyrs Stadium, cheering, chanting, and dancing. Many of them said they were thrilled to have a pope after nearly four decades. Pope John Paul II visited in 1985. There was joyous music as the crowd waited for the Pope's arrival. Rosalie Buenda says she is very moved to have the Pope in the country after 38 years. She says her joy is immense. Mame Yan Zuambi, who also teaches the faith, says... They are absolutely delighted. She goes on to say everything has to change because he came to bring the light of light in our country, the Congo. We will have the peace of Christ in our hearts and in the whole world. Francis arrived in Kinshasa on Tuesday, the first stop on his trip to the continent. He goes to South Sudan on Friday. In his speech today, the Pope urged young people in the Democratic Republic of Congo to build a future without the ethnic rivalry, corruption and distrust that have caused many conflicts in Africa, including in the eastern DRC, and he told them they were central to the church. He says they are indispensable and responsible for their church and their country. They are part of a greater history, he tells them, one that calls on them to take an active role as a builder of communion, a champion of fraternity, an indomitable dreamer of a more united world. He urged them to withstand the temptations of corruption and got a resounding response. Speaking through a translator, he shouts, a corrupt person, are they honest or are they dishonest, I ask you. And the crowd responds with a loud no. Then he shouts, no to corruption. All say it, no to corruption. The response is even louder. Tomorrow, Pope Francis meets with bishops from around the country before flying to Juba, where he is expected to arrive mid-afternoon. 
You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note, we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There, you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez met with his counterpart in Morocco today as part of a visit to reduce diplomatic tensions and strike deals on customs crossing and business development. The Associated Press says the two governments were expected to sign agreements today that include the opening of customs offices at the border crossings of Spain's North African enclave of Ceuta and Malila, which Morocco does not officially recognize as Spanish territories. The move is expected to boost trade in areas around both sides of the border. The Associated Press notes the region has been a flashpoint for migration tensions, including the deaths of 23 African men, including many refugees from Sudan who stormed the border fence in Malila last year. Spain is Morocco's largest foreign investor, and Morocco's 800,000 citizens living in Spain make up the large foreign community living in the country. Africa's intelligence and security services are meeting in Botswana's capital to discuss how to reduce conflict on the continent in an effort to boost food security. More than 500 delegates are attending the summit held under the theme Food Security, Conflict and Peace in Africa. From Habrone, Botswana, reporter Mokandisi Dube has the details. The Committee of Intelligence and Security Services of Africa, CISA meeting, is expected to come up with strategies to counter emerging security threats which hinder food production, including terrorism, poaching, corruption, drug trafficking and smuggling. Opening the summit today, Botswana President Mukwezi Masisi said some challenges facing Africa arise from food insecurity. Accordingly, given your mandate to protect life and to build the sustainability and tranquility within, between and among nations, the theme of food security, conflict and peace in Africa that has been chosen for this 18th session of the CISA conference is very relevant because some conflicts in Africa emanate from food insecurity. Masisi says the war in Ukraine has made the food situation worse with Africa hard hit. This situation of food insecurity has been exacerbated by the ongoing Russia-Ukraine Conference, as these two countries are the main producers of staple cereal, fertilizers, and gas. Incoming CISA chairperson Peter Mahosi says the intelligence organization must ensure more advanced surveillance amid increased security threats. Our job is to look at the challenges that we have in Africa, come up with solutions or recommendations to our leaders in Africa. We look at the challenges broadly. There will be the political, there will be the military, there will be socioeconomic, there will be financial, all those, we look at them as those elements of national power for each and every country.
Caesar Executive Secretary Zainab Ali Kotoko spells out the organization's core mandate. Coordinate and provide strategic intelligence on all issues, threats facing the continent. Also, the Secretariat, which is the technical arm of the committee itself, headquarters in Addis Ababa, briefs on a regular basis the Peace and Security Council of the African Union on major threats facing the continent. The meeting, which ends Friday, comes as the continent grapples with terrorism and civil strife in hotspots such as the Horn of Africa, West Africa and Southern Africa. For VOA, this is Mkondisi Dube in Khaburoni, Botswana. The Mo Ibrahim Foundation has issued a new report on African governance that says much of Africa has become less safe and democratic over the last decade. It found that government violence against civilians and political unrest increased, with governments using restrictions to clamp down on dissent. The report also notes democratic backsliding, citing a surge in military coups and armed conflicts. Joseph Siegel, director of research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, discussed these findings and the Russian Wagner Group's backing of some African coup leaders with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shenawi. The Mo Ibrahim report is a highly respected analysis that's put out, and it's validating the trends of democratic backsliding that we've seen in Africa over the last number of years. Most obvious are the coups, which Africa thought it had left behind over the previous two decades, where we had seen a dramatic decline in the number of military interventions in government. But this reflects a a reversal where we're seeing the increased politicization of militaries in more governments, even when there aren't coups. Uh, We're also seeing an increase in the number of term limit evasions on the continent. There have been 13 leaders who have evaded term limits since 2015. And so there's a, a broader disregard for the rule of law that is undermining these uh, democratic processes. I think perhaps what's most important from the Mo Ibrahim report is the link between declining democratic checks and balances and increased instability. Now, there are 16 countries in Africa that are now facing conflict. That's a doubling of the past decade. Three quarters of those countries in conflict are authoritarian leaning. So it shows the close link between autocracy and instability in Africa. The report's authors also found overall security problems pervasive as government violence against civilians and political unrest increased across Africa since the COVID-19 pandemic began, with governments using restrictions to clamp down on dissent. How do you explain this regression? Well, it's a combination of factors. The decline of democracy means the governments in power are less legitimate. And so they are having to use more repression to maintain their hold on power. This dovetails with the increased role of militaries in government and militaries who are less beholden to the rule of law and respecting human rights. So the timing of democratic backsliding and increased repression go hand in hand. I think it's also important to recognize that the increased 
and violence against civilians occurred when we saw a period of international distraction because of the pandemic. And over time, different authoritarian leading governments realized that they had more latitude to bend the rules and realized that there wasn't necessarily going to be a strong response from the regional uh, economic and, and political communities and international democratic community who were facing their own crises. About Russian backing uh, authoritarian governments, especially after uh, military coups. The role of external authoritarian actors like Russia and China in uh, bolstering authoritarian regimes has also contributed to this uh, democratic backsliding and, and the increased repression. Clearly, Russia has seen the opportunity to intervene in African countries where you have authoritarian-leaning governments who are isolated domestically, and therefore Russia has been able to enhance its influence by coming in and propping up these regimes, often military juntas, but other authoritarian governments, and in the process, contributing to a more repressive environment, a more unstable environment, while enhancing Russian influence. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with my colleague Mohamed El-Shenawi. Zimbabwe's embassy says it has concrete plans to repatriate thousands of its citizens whose exemption permits which allow them to live and work in South Africa will be terminated on June 30th. The process will affect close to 180,000 Zimbabweans who have been given a year and a half to shift to other permits. But the embassy says many do not qualify and chose to go home instead. To Sokomalo reports from Pretoria. Addressing the media at the embassy in Pretoria today, Zimbabwean ambassador to South Africa David Hamadziribi said his government is ready to receive those who chose to return home. He said an online registration program has taken effect, allowing those choosing to return home to enter their details, including any assistance they need. This will be followed by a physical registration process that will be rolled out across all South African provinces. Some zip holders have decided they want to go back to Zimbabwe and they need assistance. And they are the ones who we are addressing to say if you do need some assistance, the government of Zimbabwe is giving you the opportunity to be able to take advantage of that assistance and facilitation that we can give. The ambassador conceded that children of the returnees will face challenges as the move will happen in the middle of the school year. Hamadiribi said the embassy will offer transportation in special cases, along with help in clearing goods at the border and placing children in Zimbabwean schools. Some Zimbabweans in South Africa have welcomed the move. Lizwe Kwebu, who has lived in South Africa for close to two decades, says the program will provide some dignity to the returnees. And I actually want to encourage our people to take advantage of the registration exercise so that there is that smooth uh, transition from this other country to the other country. Then I want to also say I'm happy about the announcement about the school kids who are going to school. Butolezo Nyati, leader of Boots, an organization advocating for a decent return of the affected Zimbabweans, told VOA that his organization also welcomes the move. 
Uh, we are so happy that um, the embassy or the government of Zimbabwe is actually um, coming on board and uh, uh, saying that they are willing uh, to be repatriated because that is what we, we want to see whereby people will be repatriated with their dignity being intact instead of them being deported. However, another Zimbabwean, Jabunyati, told VOA that although he welcomes the move, it will be dangerous to send thousands of Zimbabweans back home before fixing the conditions that led them to leave the country. But there are issues where the source of the problem could be political violence or could be economic meltdown. Those issues are not addressed. We are not sure if all Zimbabweans would love to, to go back into that uh, situation which, which drove them out of the country in the first place. Meanwhile, a court challenge to the termination of the permits will be heard in April. Legal experts say the court could quash the decision, extend the permit termination deadline, or simply endorse it. Tuso Kumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Shogun Chang, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs>